Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jenkins! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media, yada, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Um, very excited to finally have back a uh, uh, fan favorite, um, former colleague, uh, enduring friend, um uh perhaps the most cult- cultured um and 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 erudite uh florida man known to uh existence none other than uh charles cw cook uh now a senior writer senior what what are you at nr that's right senior writer okay for a while you were uh the editor of uh the nr do we still say national review online is that a thing that, that I is think said? we now say nationalreview.com. Okay. All right. Um, I still consider you part of the great chain of being that I was as the first Absolutely. online editor. So uh, anyway, welcome back. Uh, some listeners may recall that I kept promising Charlie would come on during the great uh, brouhaha over my third party trial balloon thing. And um, I'm happy to discuss it. It should uh, we get to it. But like it seems like much of the air has gone out of those tires but if you want to if when you see your opening for why you should attack me uh i i you have carte blanche to do it and i will stand aside but why don't we start with the with the punditry we are not far from um the one-year anniversary of joe biden's uh first year or, or of his inauguration um I had to give a re- I had to give a gr- letter grade for Politico, and I gave him a D plus. Um, what what would be your grade, and why? I'd say somewhere around there. I think we have to separate out my criticisms of Joe Biden on policy grounds and my criticisms analytically of how he's done his job. And I I would say yeah maybe a, a D. I'm a long way from him on policy ground, so I'm never going to like him there. But I think ultimately uh, he's messed it up. Now, the first thing I will say is that he he did not inherit sunlit uplands and many of the things that have continued into his presidency are not his fault. They weren't Trump's fault either. Coronavirus was not Trump's fault. Inflation is not Joe Biden's fault. But, and this is the first problem he has, he made some pretty big promises. Mm. He said he would shut down the virus. It's not my words. That was for his words. He contrasted himself 
with President Trump in this area, and he hasn't been much better, in part because he can't be, because no one can be, because the president is not a king or a pope and does not control the spread of viruses. He made promises about the economy, and again, largely through no fault of his own, those haven't come true. And then, of course, he's made certain mistakes. And this is the second criticism I have of him. He's not acting like a president who inherited certain problems and was elected for certain reasons. He allowed himself early on to be convinced by historians and progressive activists that he could be a great man, that he could preside over transformational change. And he should have said, no, I don't have the majorities in Congress. That's not why I was put into this position. And have you noticed we've just spent four or five trillion dollars fighting COVID? It is still around. We have a coming problem with inflation. Uh, My job is to to focus on that. And he didn't. And instead, he's made a lot of things worse. Um, Yes, presidents aren't kings, but he signed $2 trillion in spending in uh, March, which has made inflation worse. He presided over the Afghanistan debacle. Uh, He said at his press conference, well, the situation in Ukraine depends on whether it's a minor incursion, and so on and so forth. So I I think he has, objectively speaking, done a bad job by over-promising and then by failing to adjust his expectations to the real world in which he lives. Um, I think, I, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think I'm probably speaking for both of us that it would not be to the uh, edification of the listeners if you and I got into a big argument about the nature of this inflationary crisis. Um, and while I'm, I'm willing to stipulate that he's done nothing to help, in that the spending probably makes things worse. I, Dave Bonson has kind of convinced me that 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 the spending, the money supply stuff, isn't at the root of the inflation problem. Um, but um, I'm sorry, I guess I'm sort of with Ramesh and 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 David on that stuff. But at the same time, as a political matter, when you have inflation and you just start pumping a gazillion more dollars into the economy, it's very hard to argue that you're helping. Um, and but beyond that, I, I guess what's sort of interesting, I got to do a big to, to do. I wanted to write a column for the LA Times about how um, Biden's problems have to do with his intellectual insecurity. And I, I think that's a big chunk of it. But then we, shh, my editor kind of didn't like that. We argued for a while. And as we were arguing about it, I was like, well, I mean, look, just why haven't there been any sister soldier moments? And, you know, why is he not? You know, Bill Clinton wouldn't have done any of this stuff. She said, oh, that's a good column. I was like, all right, I'll write that column. So that's the column I wrote. But um, what's interesting on both fronts is that, uh, to me, is that basically all of the insightful indictments of Biden have almost nothing of a first order to do with ideological critiques. They have to do with the fact that of either, you know, sort of he's he's not handling the politics of this well for reasons that don't have like if bernie sanders were president 
you'd say, okay, well, this is because he's this ideological socialist guy who wants, you know, to make us like the Denmark he imagines it is. Um, that's not Biden. Biden just wants to be great, right? And to prove his detractors wrong. And he's doing badly because of it. And I just think that's sort of a, it's a weird moment. You can't say that he was this, you know, we, we kind of made Bill Clinton into a Manchurian candidate. We really made Barack Obama into a Manchurian candidate. We definitely made Hillary Clinton into something, you know, worse. And Biden's just this ward healing hack who isn't up to the job. And it's, a, it's, it's interesting to see a lot of people on the right try to make it more than that. I'm not saying you are, but it's, it's, this is sort of new territory for, you know, for, for right-wing punditry these days is that it's not an ideological tr critique first and foremost anymore. Well, I, I think yes and no. I certainly agree that Joe Biden is a ward healing hack. I do think it matters that he ran a campaign that uh, lent itself to the split screen, where on one side you have the man saying, I will heal the nation, I will bring honor back to the White House, uh, and sounding all the right notes of moderation. And on the other, you had his campaign website, which was, and don't take my word for it, in the estimations of most major progressive writers who would point this out throughout 2020, the most left-wing manifesto since George McGovern. And I think that is one of the reasons he's run into trouble. Because, you know, if you watched as I did the election from Florida, you didn't see any of that. We were inundated with ads for Joe Biden. And mm -hmm. all of them were non-ideological and soothing. The radio ad that ran constantly on the station I have on default in my car was about honor. He mentioned the military. He mentioned, um, without you know, referring to him by name, you know, our current problem with <laughs> division. So if you elected Joe Biden as a result of that, you would have thought he would be someone that he hasn't turned out to be. And who he has turned out to be is ideological. I'm not sure it's his ideology, but that doesn't really matter. You have a guy who has, from the beginning, uh, been selling a spending package bigger than the New Deal, who has become so invested on what I essentially think is a conspiracy theory about voting rights that he's however you want to put it, comparing his opponents to Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis. The, the best description of this that I heard is that Joe Biden won the presidency because he realized that Twitter isn't real life. And having become president, he has decided that Twitter is real life. Mm -hmm. And he's proceeded accordingly. So do I think that like Bernie Sanders or on the other side of the aisle, uh, say, uh, a Mike Lee, that... Joe Biden goes to bed every night thinking in ideological terms. Absolutely not. But he has become the vessel for an ideological approach to the presidency that has done him a great deal of harm. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And, and I agree with you to a certain extent. It's a distinction without a difference 
in the sense that if the policies are ideologically freighted, you have to have the argument about the policies. But, you know, I, I've heard this argument, Steve makes this argument all the time about Joe Biden's website being, you know, you know, you know, better than the original Russian or whatever. And I get that. But the the thing is, is like, no one in America, you know, it always seemed to me that the, the website stuff was basically a sop to the left wing base to say, hey, look, just check out his website. You know, we're with you. And then he goes out and does this, you know, you know, uh, normalcy appeal, which is actually what got him elected. And that's the strange thing to me is like he seems to think he campaigned. He's acting as if he campaigned on the website rather than right. the things he actually told voters. And um, and my only point is, is that I don't think he's doing that because ideologically his heart was where his website was. I think he has been you know, I, I, I think those historians have, it's funny how those historians will go down in history <laughs> as giving him among the worst political advice imaginable. Oh, no question. No question. <laughs> and, and they got him in this enormous trouble. But, um, the, you know, the simple fact, you know, so like, anyway, I wrote this piece and, you know, my argument was, um, that, you know, and this is a point that you guys have made on the editor's podcast a bunch of time. I know Garrity's made it a bunch, you know, that Biden was never a centrist. He was a centrist as defined between the two poles of the Democratic Party. And so when you had a lot of Sam Nunn's and, and those kinds of conservative Democrats, he the difference splitting had him had the center of gravity further to the right. Now the Democratic Party's moved so far to the left as the center of gravity. He went with it. And I think it was by by no means the most disastrous thing in that 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 press conference he gave, but I thought it was a remarkably telling moment when he said, "Hey, look, the reason I didn't call any Republicans to talk about voting rights is I, I had to make sure I had my own party altogether first, which is a complete violation of actually what bipartisanship is. Right? Real bipartisanship means you throw a couple of the fringe people in your own party under the bus in order to grab a couple of the mainstream people from the other party and put them in your coalition." But it tells you what his version of centrism was. Bill Clinton's version of the centrism was exactly that. It was like you 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 pick up some cr small crappy member of your coalition, throw him against the wall to prove to a much larger slice of the electorate that, see, I'm not like those guys. And I don't think there's a week that's gone by where someone hasn't said to me, man, that would make a great sister soldier moment. And Biden refuses to do it. And I just think the fa I think the fascinating thing about I think that's at the heart, other than Afghanistan, that's at the heart of Biden's problems is his refusal to understand how to build a majority coalition, the likes of which was what that got him elected, sort of the the Trump Yunkin voters. He doesn't care about them for some reason. And my only point is the explanations for that have nothing to do, have very little to do with ideology and almost everything to do with his self-conception and his play and his is and his and the way he is handled by his staff and and his insecurities and all these other sort of more prosaic, less interesting, you know, or less familiar ways of describing the problem. I, I would just add one more element to that. And it is ideological, not his ideology, but the ideology of many within his party, certainly many within the press. And, and that is that there is a, a profound difference in the way that the Democratic Party and the American left thinks about certain issues now 
than it did in, say, 1994, in that it has made some questions imperative. And when you make a, a, a question imperative, you can no longer compromise. And what I mean by that is the American public is, for better or for worse, a little bit confused and um, self-contradictory on the question of immigration. And they also move depending on who's president. So people became more pro-immigration when Trump was president because they didn't like the way he talked about immigrants. But now that Biden's president, they're far more hawkish on the question of immigration because they don't like the open border. And that is... Uh, annoying if you have a coherent view of immigration, which I'm frankly not sure I do. Mm -hmm. But it also lends itself to compromise and to a deal. But if you believe that enforcing the border is white supremacy, you can't compromise. You can't have a little bit of white supremacy. Right. And I understand that most Democratic voters do not think like that. But the idea that using state force to police the border is somehow illegitimate, has grown and grown in popularity in the Democratic Party. We saw this during the primaries. You see this if you read the newspaper. And that makes it quite difficult for Joe Biden. Because I agree with you here, the instinct that he has is clearly we'll fix it. Mm -hmm. Bill Clinton's view was fix it. Um, you know, He had Barbara Jordan on his side, for goodness sake. Yeah. And in fact, you also had Republicans on the other side who were more friendly towards open borders. Um, but Biden is sitting in, in an environment now in which he is scared of saying anything like that, or even coming to what would be perceived as a moderate compromise in the country, because you know the likes of Jim Acosta will show up at the White House, start crying, and read a poem. And I think Democrats have rather hamstrung themselves in this way. And I think that Joe Biden is uniquely unsuited to deal with it because he's not strong. He doesn't have any ideological foundation. He's not very well read, frankly. He's not mm. especially bright and he's old. And this has pushed him to a position of cowardice where he just can't seem to bear the bad press that he gets and so, yeah, he's searching for a way to keep the extremists in his party on side as a priority because he is worried about what they might say. When actually, and I think you're right about this, if he threw them against a wall, his approval rating might go up 10 points. It's, I mean, yeah, it's obvious to me that like, like when the head of the teachers union in Chicago mm -hmm. went on strike in, in contravention of a black Chicago mayor's order to keep the schools open, right? So he's got people on the ground. He's got political cover. Um, if he had just, you know, because he just said something, said, so, you know, these people, you know, are not doing what's best for kids. Um, that would have helped him. The, the district attorney, Manhattan DA, who basically, like, doesn't want to send anybody to prison unless they murdered somebody. Um, he could have said something about that. I gather that the 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 it's 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 de it's denied by the Department of Education. But you know this Cardona guy 
it's alleged at least, or it seems like he invited the letter that called parents domestic terrorists. You know, Biden can throw that guy under the bus. I mean, who, you know, I mean, how many divisions does Miguel Cardona have? And and one of the great things about, I mean, like great thing about the actual sister soldier moment is that she was a nobody, right? This is completely like Bambi versus Godzilla, you know, politically speaking. But the point of it is the symbolism of it. So Biden could pick some totally obscure person and just say, you know, this is not what my Democratic Party believes. And it would have to help him with independents. I don't know if it would help him with Republicans. And, you know, so I, I've been meaning to bring this up for months. Um, what's his name? Oh, gosh, he's the editor of uh, Michael Tomaski, right? He remember, remember, was it Spamberger who said uh, nobody elected this guy to be FDR, yes. right? So he wrote a piece in the New Republic where he said, was sort of drenched with sort of mocking and, and, and condescension, said, well, that's not in fact true. I, I voted for him to be FDR, and a lot of people in my community, and he, he says, I live in Tacoma, Tacoma Park, where uh, uh, Jamie Raskin is their representative. We wanted him to be the F, be FDR. And this was supposed to be some sort of like mic drop, silver bullet, devastating point, when the simple fact is, is that people like Tomaski want every president to be FDR. And they will always want that. And they will therefore they will always vote for Democrats. The people who got Biden elected were, you know, conservative-ish older black ladies in South Carolina who like police and like, you know, and probably believe the border should be a thing. Um and um and it just it is as a matter of just I had Josh Crashaber talking about this a long time ago in here and he was saying look there are people in the White House and in the, in the leadership of the, the DNC these sort of the people that David Shore is talking about who will if pressed can admit sort of this gets to your sort of you know point about about once you make things categorical you can't go back on them it says there are people in Biden's orbit who understand it's bad politics but they think it's a moral you know that they're Reinhold Niemöller and that they cannot bend on certain things, which is just so stupid on its own grounds insofar as if all you're doing is making it so that the people you think are white supremacists get reelected, then maybe you should have a little more sort of situational pragmatism about what smart politics are. And it's a very it's it's sort of a, just a fascinating thing to watch for me sociologically to see people deliberately making bad political decisions, thinking history will think well of them. I hadn't read that Michael Tomaski column, but that really is an absolutely ridiculous argument. As you say, the question in presidential elections, especially in a divided country such as ours, is who are the people who are persuadable? Right. I mean, that, it, who are the majority it's, it's, makers? Yeah, this is a narcissistic way of looking at the world. I, I want every president, you know, to to agree with me a hundred percent. Of course, it doesn't mean mean they should. In fact, they absolutely shouldn't. <laughs> they would lose in a landslide. Um, actually, you know, so th- I, I want to move on, but um, I had another thought balloon, trial balloon, thought experiment thing. Uh, recently, I'm against it. I want to say up front, I'm against it, but I want to entertain it for conversation purposes about mandatory voting. And 
I'm curious where you come. Obviously, I, I, I'm going to assume that you're against it on proper libertarian. Profoundly against yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Flip the safety on your rifle. You're not going to make me vote. I get it. But the, the, the solution, the, the problem that it addresses is an interesting one to think about for a second. Um, if everybody voted, first of all, it, it would it would disempower the crazy base that dominates the primaries in both parties. And it would empower majorities, right? The people in the sort of the middle. Now, neither you nor I fetishize the policy positions of the middle. But a simple fact is, is that despite all of the talk about how voter ID is racist, four out of five Americans, including four out of five African Americans, are in favor of voter ID. Uh, affirmative action in terms of racial quotas is unpopular with most Americans. You can go down a very long list of things that we are told are crazy right-wing positions, which are in fact majority positions in America. And it seems to me, I mean, like, what is your, so neither of us like this proposed remedy, but what remedy would you favor for figuring out a way to get the incentive structure right for American politicians to actually respond more toward to where most of the voters are. I don't think I do favor a remedy. I don't like you. So I you would like to keep primaries, for example? Well, <laughs> this is where I run into, and I'm conscious of a, a difference between what I would like and what is practical. I would like to return to smoke-filled rooms. I'd like parties to behave more privately than they do. I think the United States is unique in its governmentalization of political parties, such that if somebody says, I'm going to run as a Republican, and then they win the requisite number of votes, the party is essentially powerless to stop them mm -hmm. in almost every other country. I think every other country. Political parties are private. You join them and then you vote in their internal elections and then they put up a candidate and then everyone is permitted to vote on whether they wish that candidate to represent them or not. I, I think I read a piece once comparing primaries to having a pre-approval process for commercial goods such that you wouldn't just get to decide whether you wanted Apple's latest product. You would also get to decide what it was. <laughs> so I think there's a strong criticism there and I'm not at all convinced that primaries have done a better job than did the smoke-filled rims but of course no one is going to relinquish that power and no party is going to suggest it because it would be unpopular uh, among the majority which fetishizes democracy and wants to insert it into all sorts of places that it doesn't belong so yes I would keep primaries in that I don't think I have a choice I don't think our system is broken. I, I, I mean, on, on the specific question of universal voting, firstly, yes, I object to it on libertarian grounds. I don't think people should be obliged. I think it is a legitimate choice to decline to vote. Mm -hmm. you know, I think that is voting yeah, in the same way as I think silence I mean, is speech. Right, and compelled speech is bad. And coerced speech right. is bad. Yeah, yeah I, I get it. Um, second, I am a strong believer in the idea that not voting can be taken as a sign of satisfaction. I, I think that was true in the 1990s. 
And the fact that we have high turnout now, it's not something I wish to change or restrict or limit. And it's not something I regret per se, but I do think that it is the result of a country that is less at ease with itself, that feels more existentially threatened by the other party or the other side, and that has channeled many of the civic uh, energies that it would previously have applied elsewhere into politics, and in particular, national politics. So, you know, and, and then the third objection I have is that there are an awful lot of people who I think rationally choose not to vote because they know that they wouldn't do it very well. And when I say well, I don't mean that they would vote for people I don't like or for policies that I um, oppose. I mean that they are aware that they don't know enough about it and are not interested enough in it to make their vote worthwhile. In fact, funnily enough, it sounds like a Tom Friedman story, but I met such a woman last week who, while I was selling my car, told me that she hates politics and knows nothing about it and does not vote as a result. I don't want that woman voting. (laughs) Again, I don't know what her politics are. And judging by where she lives and that she had a cross around her neck and a few other comments that she made about her family and her life, I assume that if you put her in a voting booth and said, choose Republican or Democrat, that she would probably vote Republican. But I don't think the country would be better off if we expected her to vote when she herself is saying, don't know about it, don't care, uh, don't want to to change that. So I am against that. In terms of um, the broader question, I'm still, as I'm sure I've said to you before, sufficiently in love with America to be fine with the status quo. And I don't spend a great deal of time worrying about how effectively we translate the public will into Congress and the presidency, because I think what we have essentially achieved is a ping-ponging extremism that I dislike that balances out into moderation. I was talking to Kevin Williamson about this the other day on our podcast, and he said, well, it's a bad thing that we have one political party that wants to build a wall and restrict immigration dramatically and one political party that wants to open the borders. And in one sense, it is. But in another sense, what you end up with is stasis. And America, for all of the sturm und drang of our politics, is in a, a cycle of stasis. This, funnily enough, is what Joe Biden has failed to understand by, by pretending he's FDR. Donald Trump didn't get very much done. And... Joe Biden is not going to get very much done. And that makes sense to me because Donald Trump won narrowly. Joe Biden won more convincingly in the Electoral College, uh, uh, but narrowly if you look at the number of states that would have had to flip for Trump to be president again. Congress has moved around, but at no point since 2008 when we did get big change 
has there been a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate? I, I think over time, people are getting what they want. I mean, this this is a slight, slight turn of the conversation, but this is why I'm so firmly in favor of the filibuster, because what the filibuster does is it forces real political debate down to the states and in a more negative sense it empowers the presidency which i dislike but in a way that causes any substantial policy change made by a president to be easily reversible by his successor and over time that leads to uh, a lack of radical change until you get the sort of majorities that Joe Biden is hallucinating about. The FDR 1936 majorities, the LBJ 1964 majorities, and so on. Yeah, so I I, I just look at it very differently. I mean, I gotta say, I think, I think you're right about the sort of the net result of stasis and all that, and the two things cancel each other out. And I think that the Madisonian structure which by sort of definition and tightly controlled legislatures pushes power to the center because these are the people who are the majority makers, right? Just so like we were talking about with voters, but now with voters in the Senate, you know, Manchin and Cinema become incredibly powerful in a very narrow Senate precisely because they are closest to, they're closest, they're the most persuadable people for either party. Um, and so that just makes them, less than, you know, not a foregone conclusion about where they're going to vote. I agree with all that. At the same time, I'm with Yuval on a lot of this stuff. Congress, particularly the House, is where politics is supposed to happen. And in a, in a really fundamental way, it is where a huge and diverse co continental nation hammers out its grievances with each other and its, con and its contestable um, claims about what policy should be. And when it's sort of like when they get rid of wetlands, that wa the water that used to get absorbed by the wetlands goes someplace else. When the politics that was supposed to be absorbed by Congress isn't absorbed by Congress, it spills out into the rest of the culture. And one of the reasons why we have these big swingy elections that we get, which you're right, may yield a sort of seesawing, you know, uh, very difficult to have sweeping changes in, pol in, in policy without them being pulled back four years later. But one of the reasons why we have that pattern is precisely because each party finds it more and more necessary to uh, tell its voters that the other party, members of the other party, aren't just wrong. They're not even persuadable. They are existential threats to all that you hold dear. They're white supremacists, they're communists, they're Satanists, they're this, they're that. Um, and you get it, that that kind of infection gets so deep in the bloodstream. You have one sensible people like Ron Johnson, you know, saying the dumbest friggin, well, I, I can't say the dumbest things about vaccines because that is a very competitive marketplace to come up with the dumbest things to say about vaccines. But he's in the race, you know, and um, and you have a whole cottage industry that treats um uh that that on both sides that 
treats politics as basically the rearranging the chairs around the table before we actually get to a shooting war of some kind. And I don't think that's healthy. And I don't think it's healthy even if we're not going to get the shooting war. And I don't think we are going to get the shooting war. But if you had both parties actually doing politics in Congress, passing laws, and I know you're in favor of congressional supremacy and you think it's Congress is the place that's right laws, not the Supreme Court, not the president stuff. Well, if Congress actually started working properly again and the incentives were to get to Congress, not to use it as a place to perform and make a jackass out of yourself, the Matt Gates variety, but instead to actually be a legislature, a lot of the people who don't care about politics still wouldn't vote, wouldn't be engaged, but um, they would do so for sort of healthy reasons because they think, you know, hey, you know, the government's actually doing the things that it's supposed to do. But instead, all that stuff is being outsourced to a bunch of institutions that are very bad at doing party work by proxy, that have a, diff have a really crappy incentive structure to get rich off of misinforming people. Um, and then it ends up sending people to Congress through the primary system that give them, you know, exactly what the gateway pundit types want, which is performative nonsense and more and more existential panic about the evils of the other side. Yes, but the existential panic is the product of too much federal power, such that when Donald Trump wins, the left is worried that the country is going to change completely in his direction. Or when Joe Biden wins, the the country is worried that the uh, the, the uh, is going to change in his direction, and so the 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 correct response to that is to limit one's exposure. And I agree with you about some of the cultural problems that we have here. Although I think that's primarily the product of the internet and national news and a more homogenous national culture that elevates all questions to the top level rather than the bottom. But the the proximate um the 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 product of that stasis in Washington is a flourishing at, at the local level that actually makes um the country more diverse in, in the real sense of that word, not the modern advertising one such that you have a state like Florida that is profoundly different um, from a state like California. And the, the risk here, and again, why we should want stasis in Washington, why we should cherish the filibuster, why we should want presidents who are modest in their use of executive power and, and in their use of vague statutes that they use to accrue executive power, is... Um, because that's how the country was designed. That's how the country works better. And that's how you avoid um, this anger. I mean, if you talk to smart progressives in states such as California or Massachusetts, um, what they are scared of, in essence, is federal power. <laughs> they don't think that because they know all of the ways in which they would use it. But they are scared that a Republican Party is going to win a trifecta in Washington, abolish the filibuster, and then 
adopt all of the laws that you would find in a state such as Florida or Texas nationally and override what they like about California. And I absolutely understand that fear. And that is the same fear the other way around that people in Florida and Texas have, that Californians are going to take over the government and they are going to preempt all that they like about Florida and Texas from the federal level. And for some reason, at no point has anyone on either side thought seriously, well, maybe we should change this. And I see the the stasis, um, the sort of overtime moderation, the net effect of these fights as not culturally being a good thing, because I agree with you, it's disastrous, although I don't blame politics for that. I see them as being um, a positive development that has created an awful lot of space um, for people to to thrill to the same flag despite um, living under you know considerably different laws and governors and and even cultures than their fellow Americans. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I'm with you on the federalism stuff. I've been a federalism guy forever. Subsidiarity, all that stuff, love it. I, I think that you're missing a step in your math, though, insofar as you're making the case for the federal government not to do much. I'm fine with the federal government not doing much. But if the federal government is going to do things, I think you'd agree, given everything I've heard you say about the Constitution, that it should come from Congress and not the courts. Not That's the, absolutely right. Not the pure, permanent bureaucracy not the deep state and not the executive branch, not executive orders, all that kind of stuff. And so I'm of the view that, you know, again, I don't like mandatory voting, but if you could figure, and I very much want to get rid of primaries altogether, I think, and I think it's more doable than you do, but um, not to say it's not, not, not to say that it, it wouldn't be hard. Um, but I actually think that not only would it be an in lot, would have the benefit of being in line with the Constitution, which the current status quo is not, um, but that if you could figure out a way to actually fix the incentive structure for elected officials so that the people who are elected care less about pleasing the Yahoo fringe of 20% of the primary base, but instead care about winning a general election, um, and therefore are more representative of the places that they come from, um, it would be better for the cultural stuff, but it would also be better in terms of address, uh, in terms of affecting the nature and flavor of what the federal government does. Because yes. you, don't, you wouldn't have one party coming in saying, this is our one shot to make up for all these years of neglect, and we are going to swing for the fences, new, new deal, new great society, that say... Um, Hey, look, I can't, I can't piss off the people who, uh, you know, who held their nose to vote for me because they didn't like the other party. I got to work with the center. I got to, I got to do what I got to do. And you would actually be more representative of, of, of the voters in your district rather than the special interests in your special ideological interests of your district. And maybe the, maybe the federal government would be doing a few more things than it is doing currently. Maybe they'd be harder to reverse. But I still think that would be better in terms of democratic legitimacy and constitutional legitimacy than the status quo that we have now. Well, I, I don't know, because I certainly agree on separation of powers. 
And I do think that Congress's inability or unwillingness to legislate is one of the reasons we have an imperial executive. Although the first thing I would do if I were the Republican Party and I took uh, power uh, is uh, to repeal an awful lot of laws that are being abused by the executive uh, and nix almost every sentence in American law that starts with the Secretary Shah or the, the President Shah. Um, I do think, though, that for every for every time that congressional stasis prevents a moderate reform of, say, entitlements or immigration, uh, it prevents four or five usurpations of power that should lie with the states. And that's not just a criticism of the Democratic Party. If you look at what the Democrats are trying to do now, most of it is not a federal concern, traditionally understood. They want to send people money. They want to establish universal pre-K, not the federal government's job. Uh, They want to manipulate the energy industry through a combination of subsidies and tax breaks and so forth. Uh, They want to tell private employers what they can and can't do with leave and send people money uh, on the basis of their individual choices. I think it is a good thing that these initiatives have been blocked. They also want to get involved in what may be the single most um, emotional area of our politics, which is abortion law. Now, I am pro-life. I think Roe versus Wade is nonsense. I also think this is a state question. I see absolutely no uh, place in the United States Constitution that pronounces on this in either direction. And I see nowhere where uh, the federal government is empowered to pronounce on it either. But the Democrats want to codify Roe. In other words, they want to wipe out the abortion laws of 50 states. And you know who else wants to do that? Quite a lot of Republicans. In fact, this is their number one threat when they talk about uh, filibuster abolition. They say, if you do that, we're going to get back at you. And what do they mean by that? Well, they mean they're going to try and ban abortion federally. They mean they're going to pass. It got 58 votes last time it came up in the Senate. National concealed carry reciprocity, which some of your listeners will be surprised to learn. I don't think it's constitutional. (laughs) I don't think the federal government has the power to determine that. Uh, I think there's a strong argument that the Supreme Court has the power to pronounce on what bare arms means um, and that each state through the 14th Amendment is obliged to respect. But I don't think Congress does. We are two senators away from creating a a circumstance in which, as two being Manchin and Cinema, who've admirably held out, in which the profound fights that we have in the press and more appropriately at the state level, make it to Congress. And I just don't think that Congress will be more uh, productive. I don't think it will be more popular. I don't think it will be more representative. Now, I accept we've actually drifted quite a way away mm-hmm. from your, your point here. Um, but I suppose I'm back where I started, which is that I think that although it feels a little bit um, sort of hinky, like a bit of a Rube Goldberg machine, that 
you get more of a sense of what the public wants over time from the system as it is currently working than you would from, say, the British parliamentary system, which I know you're not in favor of, but people who want this strong, responsive government like to point to this this temporary dictatorship, essentially, that a parliamentary majority has. Um, I, I, I much prefer the way it is here, and I don't feel that it is unresponsive to public opinion. I just think it does it in a circuitous and, and sort of chronologically spread out way yeah I, and i just think it like a banana on the tailpipe the carbon monoxide's feeding back into the system and public opinion is becoming dumber as a result of it um and everything is being portrayed as more existential than it needs to be precisely because some of these people don't know how to be a legislature don't know how to actually make arguments don't know i mean like let's put it this way the share of congress that is full of Lauren Bobberts and Cawthorns and Elon Omars and um, Marjorie Taylor Greens is increasing. And at some point, we're far from it, but at some point, I think it is axiomatic that you can hit a critical mass where, um, because of the perverse incentive structures we've got with party politics these days, um, um, which I agree with you are aided and abetted by social media and all that kind of stuff. Um, at some point, it does become a legitimate threat to the country. I mean, one Marjorie Taylor Greene is um, a conversation piece, right? 50 is a caucus. And um, we're heading towards, we're heading further away from the conversation piece and closer to the caucus because of the dysfunction of the system. And I think figuring out a way to get the incentives right again is a perfectly legitimate thing to concern yourself with, even if in the moment the stasis that you enjoy is yielding policy results that you enjoy, because no, I, don't that's, think, that's, I don't think it's going to hold. It's not quite what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's good because it yields policy results I like. I'm saying it's good because there is no consensus in the country there is great division in the country. There is no super majoritarian agreement as to how we should all live as a country and that the system reflects that. In other words, I'm saying that over time, the system is reflecting that we are divided. And if if Joe Biden really did have the sort of congressional majorities that a Franklin Roosevelt had, that would not be the case. And if you if you look back to 1936, the Democratic Party, there were fewer states, but the, the Democratic Party had, what, 78 senators? Yeah, yeah. Now, that wasn't because of um, some quirk w- within the way the Senate is constructed. That was because... Unfortunately, from my perspective, because I think I would have loathed the man, the public was wildly supportive of Roosevelt and his agenda. And um, although I often complain about the New Deal as being unconstitutional, I think it was. It seems unquestionable to me that had Roosevelt said, all right, we need a few uh, constitutional amendments to make the federal government uh, more responsive, he'd have got them. Mm. Um, what we have now is not even remotely close to that. We had 
an election in which Joe Biden won fair and square, um, uh, but had a 50-50 Senate accompany him to Washington uh, and had a House with a functional majority of three. I think it's now four, or at least uh, the Democrats couldn't afford to lose three or four representatives. Um, It is appropriate that Congress should be impotent in that position. And it was appropriate that Congress should be largely impotent under Donald Trump, who squeaked into the White House. He won fair and square, but but very narrowly, who had a reasonable House majority, but a small majority in the Senate, even after 2018, in which the Republicans picked up seats. He had 53 senators. I think that we are responding to public opinion. Now, there is a separate question of the executive branch and the way that it, it interprets and in my view, usurps the law. But the, the idea that Congress is is not uh, sort of executing the, the public will, I just think is wrong. I, I think it is appropriate when we find ourselves in this sort of long period of division and ping-ponging power for Congress to be unable to do very much and for the action to be primarily at the state level, which, um, you know, I want as a matter of, of, of structure, but I also think is true. Yeah, I, I just, again, we're, we're going around and around on this. I think we just got a chicken or the egg problem. I, I, I think the fact that Congress is reflecting the polarization of the country is not synonymous with saying it's reflecting public opinion. And, you know, we sort of began by talking about how, say, you know, voter ID laws are... Um, Popular yeah, but, with four but Congress, out of five, but the, but but that's but I think that makes my case, not yours, because voter ID laws are present in the vast majority of states, supermajority sure. of states, and the attempt currently underway by the Democrats to federally preempt all of those states and get rid of voter ID laws in fifty states is failing because the the Congress is unable to get over the hump. And 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 get that into law, and that's what I'm saying. That's that's a good thing. Yeah, but and my, my only reason I bring it, I agree, it's a good thing. But, but my point is, is no, that but it, it's the, reflective of public opinion. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, but my point is, is that it's, I'm not just talking about Republicans. I'm talking about Democrats. The Democratic Party is not reflective of the beliefs of its own voters. The Republican Party is not reflective of the beliefs of its own voters, and public opinion is being made worse. Let's talk about the Republicans. Public opinion is being affirmatively made worse, more sinister by the Republican Party. You now cannot be a Republican in good standing to a large extent unless you pay some sort of lip service or minimize January 6th or or downplay Trump's essential paper coup attempt. Um, That's not healthy. That's not a Republican Party. And I know you don't agree with any of that stuff, but like. But the the nature of the Republican Party right now, because of the perverse incentive structures, is creating politicians who have to keep their decency secret and keep their honesty secret and publicly say, yeah, no, I do think the election was stolen. I do think some of those electors were bad. I do think that we should have, you know, um, that 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 January 6th rioters are political prisoners. Um, and they're doing that not because that's the public that's the public's view. They're doing it because it's the view of 
Tucker Carlson show watchers and a handful of primary voters and of Donald Trump, who has a stranglehold on a on on not a majority, but a and not even I would argue a plurality, but a sufficient minority to cause to to ruin people's primary reelection chances. And that's what I mean about public opinion is being made dumber by the incentive structure that we have now, even though one of the benefits of it might be that it it, it reflects you know, that it, it produces a kind of stasis. But I just, well, I just don't see where the disconnect is because I agree with everything you just said about the two parties. But the Republican Party... I mean, Joe Biden won the election. Donald Trump lied about it and then tried to steal the election. Mm-hmm. And Congress certified the results. Now, obviously, not everyone in Congress did, and we saw the disgrace that was January 6th, and we've seen a lot of ongoing lying, but Congress did not fail to do its job in this scenario, and nor admirably did Mike Pence. So where is... And since January 6th, an enormous number of people in the Republican Party, prominent people in the Republican Party, um, are saying it was just another tourist day, are sure. saying all sorts of ridiculous things. But, because, but that's a, yeah. how is that a legislative issue? That's a cultural problem. It's a very real one, and I agree with you about it. But because I, I, because I that's think you're not being these, reflected in law. It, so one of the problems with, with sort of taking a snapshot of things is that it reveals all sorts of information, but it also conceals all sorts of information. You know, and I often say, a snapshot of the Titanic as it's leaving the port um, tells you a lot about the Titanic, but it, it leaves out an important part of the story. Sure, <laughs> sure. Um, the snapshot that you're seeing now, so Congress worked, you know, Congress did its function. Sure, a bunch of people, you know, from Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley to, you know, how many dozens of Congress uh, Republican congressmen did not do their job because their incentive was... Um, uh, to do otherwise than their, uphold their constitutional oath. Yes. And I think that the, the, the primary system and the, the, the media industrial complex that supports the GOP and Trumpism these days lends itself, it, is, it provides an incentive structure that encourages yes. that sort of behavior. You, you want to make a hard and fast, fast distinction between cultural problems and political problems and policy problems. And I just don't think you can, you can. No, I, I think, we're, I think we're agreeing in that you're blaming the, what you call the media industrial complex in the primary system. And I think that is what has caused that. I don't see a particular connection to Congress. If I look at Congress, what I see is uh, a Congress that ratified the election result, albeit with some drama that I dislike. Uh, that is now looking on a bipartisan basis at fixing the Electoral Count Act and that has rejected the Democratic Party's attempt to use what happened on January 6th to take control federally of a patchwork quilt election system. So I, 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 if, if, if we want to talk about the problems with the primary system, I already agree with you. I think we should have smoke-filled rooms. If you want to talk about the media industrial complex, well, you know me, I hate the media much more than you do, uh, including cable news on the right. Uh, but I don't see a particular problem in Congress. I don't see that as causing it. That's where we're disagreeing. Yeah, and I, and I see Congress slowly, right before our eyes, becoming um, a grotesquerie because of those other problems. And um, yes, but not because it can't legislate, which is where we started. 
Yeah, all right. We will put a pin in this and return to this another time. <laughs> um, but since you brought up the media, um, did you see this? So this this Peter Ducey brouhaha, uh, Joe Biden called him a dumb son of a bitch on a hot mic. Biden apologized, called Ducey and apologized. Ducey took it like a mensch and said, no big deal. Um, but it has caused the most bizarrely passionate, you know, uh, hypocrisy hunts and double standard hunts on Twitter that I've seen in a while. Um, and I, I'm hard pressed to figure out why, like, first of all, why it's a big deal. This has happened. This kind of thing happens fairly regularly in modern countries. You know, um, I'm old enough to remember when George W. Bush called Adam Clymer of the New York Times a major league asshole and Dick Cheney responded big time. And that became a huge moral panic. And um, and I'm particularly perplexed by the, the sort of the Trump apologists who, I mean, like talk about perverse, uh, craptacular congressman. Congressman Banks um, tweeted, I assume trying to troll, um, saying, has there ever been a president who has done more to undermine the independence of the media than Joe Biden, um, which like, you know, I, I hope he's trolling because if he thinks that's a serious point in the wake of Donald Trump, then that's a much more damning thing. But um, why should I care about all of this stuff? Should I care? about Well, this stuff? I, I mean, I, I don't think that anyone should care about the president fighting with journalists in fact i think people should be much ruder to journalists than they are um i i am absolutely on board with what you call hypocrisy hunting in fact i think it's imperative we heard and this is again no great defense of trump although trump's being rude didn't bother me in the way it did others we heard for years the most hilariously hyperbolic and hysterical responses to Donald Trump's insulting the press. We heard no less than that it was like Nazi Germany, the Lugan press. We heard that it was an attack on the First Amendment, that it was punching down, it was power hitting at truth. Washington Post adopted democracy dies in darkness. Yamish Alcindor trended on Twitter piece after piece in the Post and the Times about the dark clouds that were on the horizon as a result of Trump's attacks on a free press, not, not on journalists or on the media or on a newspaper columnist, on the free press itself, on the First Amendment. And then Joe Biden, and again, I don't care about this, comes out and says what he says. And it's all Oh, it was deadpan. Like, LOL. I mean, Chris Hayes. Chris Hayes. Uh, I, I wrote this down because this, this amused me. Um, the, the differences are, are amazing and, and they're notable because they, they show an approach. Um, Chris Hayes said uh, in 2017... Today, the president called American citizens who express their political views sons of bitches. And then he went on about it on his show. And yesterday, he literally tweeted, LOL. Now, 
I just think that shows a total lack of consistency and principle. I, I, I think the question has to exist independently of partisan affiliation. It's not better or worse because it's Pete Ducey or Fox. It's not better or worse because it's Barack, uh, Barack Obama or uh, George W. Bush or Donald Trump or uh, Joe Biden. It's either appropriate to do this or it's not. And my view is that I don't care because there, I, I, and I, I have this argument with Kevin and Jay and others at National Review, and I totally understand where they're coming from. And I, I understand this is a product of my own perspective, but I just, when I see this happen, um, and I feel the same about the Let's Go Brandon chant, I'm just thrilled to live in a moment of history at which journalists can be rude to politicians and politicians can be rude back and nothing happens. I'm just thrilled by that. I, 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 I'm not saying that we should all be rude to one another all the time, but it's so far down my list of things that I care about because it tells me that I'm free. And so Ducey shouts a question. It was probably a silly question. And then Joe Biden calls him a stupid son of a bitch. And then we all went out for dinner. Um, but under Trump, we didn't all go out for dinner. Under Trump, we had all these organizations putting out press releases about attacks on democracy and the, the withering of the First Amendment and the abuse of power. And yeah, I think we should find those people who said all of those silly things. And we should find Jim Acosta with his absurd book, you know, in which he implied that he was under threat for because the president didn't like him. And I think we should rub their noses in it. Yeah, again, I, I, I kind of have no problem with that. And, you know, I got in a little spat with Jeff Jarvis, who said to me, you know, I, I basically said what I said to you. is like, man, I just don't think this is a big story. Everyone behaved appropriately, you know, you know, whatever, yeah. and move on. But um, he said, oh, no, Biden should have said it because what he said was true. Deucey's a troll, blah, 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 blah. And look, and I, as is what as I responded to Jarvis, I mean, like, sure, Ducey sometimes has a real put some real bite into some of his questions, but they're totally fair game. And you know, in a in a democratic society, particularly when most of the questions that you get of a democratic president are much kinder than they need to be, to occasionally have people who are just sort of asking leading tougher questions um, is totally fair and legitimate. And moreover, I can, I mean, they, I can't remember, did they give Jon Stewart a Pulitzer or just a Peabody, right? I mean, they, um, who was far meaner and crueler and, you know, and acted in more bad faith than what Ducey, Ducey's not acting in bad faith. He's just asking hard questions that the Biden doesn't want to get. And like, and I don't mean to be too unkind, but I do think she was an anti-Semite and one of the nastiest people in American public life for the last 50 years. So I'll be a little unkind to call Peter Ducey a troll when they lavished praise and honor upon Helen Thomas, who was right. quite literally a troll, like <laughs> when you actually look at her and was an evil person who wrote, who would constantly ask, are you basically in the pay of Israel of Republican presidents? Um, and she got a hero's, you know, basically a Viking funeral as far as, as the Demo as the white house press corps was concerned. I agree with you. There's a lot of hypocrisy in all this kind of stuff. But I, the only place I would want to push back is, you know, George W. Bush calls Adam Clymer an a-hole, didn't mean for it to be public, 
Joe Biden calls uh, Ducey a dumb son of a bitch or whatever it was. Doesn't mean for it to be public. No, he did mean for it. Did he? I thought it was like just a hot mic thing. Uh, it wasn't a hot mic thing. Oh, okay. And, and and just as important as that is that the defense of it from Brian Stelter, of course, was that it was a deadpan. Yeah, well, that's nonsense. Which is... Okay. Yeah, that's nonsense. Uh, but, but it, I mean, it was a deadpan in one sense, which is why I don't care about it. But, but, but it's just that it wasn't a deadpan, of course, in any other circumstances. So. But the my point is, the only place I would push back is... Donald Trump, there are differences of degree to become differences of kind. You know, Donald Trump openly talking about how uh, we may have to open up the First Amendment, make changes. I mean, he said those things. Sure. You know, like Donald Trump talking about, um, you know, basically calling the press the enemy of the people um, and making it sort of a ritual thing on the right. Uh, you may you may have arguments defending some of that stuff in the hurly-burly of, of, of free expression and yada, yada, yada. But it's not quite the same thing as calling some journalist a, a dumb son of a bitch or a major league a-hole. It's just a different... To me, it's just one of these things is not like the others. I mean, I, it would be dishonest to propose that Donald Trump and Joe Biden have done this at a similar scale. And as you know, Donald Trump has uh, appalling views on libel, which I've savaged over and over sure, and sure, over sure. again in print. Um, the... The point here, though, is that we have a good number of documented examples of what happened when Donald Trump called a reporter a son of a bitch. The exact words that Biden uses and then prepended stupid to it. And the difference is remarkable. And uh, I, I just, I loathe that... Not people, because I expect this from people who become partisan, but that the press, which holds itself in such high regard, is so obviously partisan and behaves in such an obviously different way, contingent upon who is in the White House. And, you know, in a sense, I point it out because I think it matters. You know, if it didn't matter, I'd probably ignore it. But... Yesterday was just a a lovely example of the difference. And what you've described with Jeff Jarvis is special pleading. Well, it's fine in the case of Ducey because it's true. But that's what many conservatives think about Yamiche Alcindor. Or Jim Acosta, or a dozen. I mean, like, or Jim Acosta. It it, It doesn't matter. If the defense is the president has to sincerely believe you're a dumb son of a bitch, then (laughs) everybody's going to get called a dumb son of a bitch, right? I mean, that's just the, right. the nature of it. All I'm saying is, is that I get the hypocrisy hunting. I have no special brief for the mainstream media. I'm doing that stuff for 20 years. But, you know, when you had a president who was deliberately spreading false rumors that journal, uh, that, you know, TV personalities and uh, like Joe Scarborough were murderers. Um, yeah. The context that is a different question. Yeah, yes. but the, my point is, is it's very difficult to take the psychology of people and saying, let's look at this apples to apples, what he said about Chuck Todd versus what he said about Peter Ducey, um, when in fact you have all of this other stuff that informed people's reactions to the Chuck Todd stuff that doesn't inform the reactions to the Peter Ducey. Yeah, I, I, and I and I accept that, except that the Trump hyperbole, or rather the hyperbole about Trump, started right from the beginning. Sure. It didn't need too much to have accrued before this 
was the mainstay. And, you know, I just think it's so obvious. And, and, and I think it's one of the reasons, I mean, this is a different topic, but it, this is one of the reasons why it's really hard for people who don't like Trump, such as myself, to convince other people with whom we agree on most things that Trump truly was different. Mm-hmm. Because they say, well, they said the same stuff about Reagan and George W. Bush, and they're doing it already about Ron DeSantis, and that's true. But the thing is, is that in many cases with Trump, it was actually correct. Right. But when you, as the press did and is already doing with other Republicans, start from that premise, even though it might become true, it's not a surprise that so many conservatives roll their eyes and say well i don't want to hear it why are you helping them you know and trump was different he was he uh, so many of the things that have been said about other republicans were true of him it's just that it's really difficult to convince people of that when the press you know arrived at its view of trump um as a matter of habit rather than of analysis Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, we could go around the horn on a lot of this stuff, but I basically agree with you. And we're over time. And I did want to ask you about one last thing. Well, I'll, I'll talk to you more about that BBC thing we talked about offline. But um, uh, you're going to be teaching a, a class on on uh, boomsticks and whatnot, right? <laughs> um, uh, what What is this thing that you're doing? Are you becoming a professor on me? No, 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 no. Don't worry. Don't worry. No one will have me, Jonah, which is why I'm doing it online. Uh, it's with a, an organization called Chapter. Mm-hmm. And um, there are a considerable number of other courses available on Chapter. I think the majority of them are left-leaning. Oh, so the majority that. of them aren't about secession? <laughs> <laughs> and, and nor is mine. <laughs> Mine is about the history of the right to keep and bear arms from the colonial period through the revolutionary era and the civil war and into the present day. It's uh, four weeks long. It started yesterday, but you can still sign up. Um, You won't have missed anything if you do. Uh, And it's done asynchronously, uh, which means that you log on and and, uh, look at it when you have time. It's it's not a series of lectures. It's not. So someone signed up today, they could still catch the first lecture. Uh, they could still catch the first week. And in fact, I think they can sign up all the way uh, up until the end of next week, which is which is week two, and go back and do the, the first bit. And how do they find it? Well, they can go to getchapter.app or go to my Twitter page. It's pinned at the top. Or go to my website. There's a link. And how do you like doing it? I think it's been great. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of curation. Yeah. And I sort of found four weeks worth of, of links to historical documents and essays and um, academic papers and a little bit of my own writing too. And then I spend most of my time answering questions mm-hmm. about these documents. I, it's been good. Um, as you know, I mean, I know you joke about me being a Florida man, but th- this is, a, I find a topic that is fascinating um, intellectually because it's not just about the practical question of firearms or gun control or what you will. Um, it's about the historical conception of where power should lie. Mm-hmm. And America, and to a lesser extent Britain, 
has had an extremely radical answer to that at various points. Um, you know, I know we need to finish up, but the, the New Hampshire Constitution of 1784 has a right to revolution. <laughs> uh, extremely explicitly and harshly worded right to revolution uh, in it. Now, this is a document that creates the government. Right. It's a document that um, establishes and sets the rules for the government, which has, in modern parlance, a monopoly on power. But written into the same document is the idea that it is um, slavish, I think is the word used, to submit to despots and tyrants, and that if you consider this government to be full of despots and tyrants, you're not just allowed, you are obliged to kill them. Now, I'm not proposing anyone does that. I'm not proposing we should add that to the federal constitution. But that is a remarkable departure from all of history, basically. And uh, I just find that absolutely fascinating. I do. um, I mean, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but I do want to correct one thing you said about in modern, you said in modern parlance, the state has a monopoly on power. I think the phrase is from Weber, it's monopoly on violence. Oh, sorry, yeah, I meant... Because I know you don't violence, believe yeah. that the state is the only thing that is allowed to have power in our society. No, no, sorry, I meant, I meant violence, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like the Vermont Constitution, I believe still basically says, you know, you better have a gun, you pansy. I mean, it's like something really <laughs> close to that. Um, and I remember that because I did that big piece about Howard Dean for the magazine years ago, and he would always brag about what proved him to be a moderate governor was he had such a good rating from the NRA and he would never mention that like the Vermont constitution really limits what you could possibly do on gun control, or at least it did back then. Maybe something's changed. I don't know, but no, it it hasn't. Although Vermont has done a bunch anyway. Um, I mean, Vermont from 1777, when that document was adopted until 2003, it was the only state with what's called constitutional carry, mm-hmm. no permitting system whatsoever. Uh, and that's because its constitution had been interpreted to prohibit all controls on the carrying of arms. Now, 23 states are constitutional carry states. Um, Vermont's constitution is also really interesting because it's a great... Uh, counter argument to the new faddish idea that the second amendment's in some way uh, protective of slavery mm-hmm. um, in that the Vermont constitution's right to bear arms was copied from the Pennsylvania constitution's right to bear arms. And it was ratified at the same time as Vermont abolished slavery. Mm-hmm. So obviously if, um, and I mean, this is true of Pennsylvania too, why would Pennsylvania have put that into its constitution given it, it was four years away from abolishing slavery and was a northern state and full of Quakers. But, you know, th- there's just no way that Vermont would have said, right, so we're all set on abolishing slavery. Yes, let's import the slave uprising prevention measure right. from Pennsylvania at the same time. Um, uh, but again, I mean, the way they're written, it's just historically fascinating. I mean, if you Every country is is full of declarations from the king about how much power he has and all these little exceptions he's prepared to grant and then there's all these documents saying yeah, if you don't like the government why don't you just kill everyone in it? <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and also i mean like the it's a good point about the slavery thing which i hadn't really thought about but also just the 
you know, if you look at some of those firearm protections and state constitutions, at least, you know, this stuff so much better than I do, but it does somewhat, by my recollection, does somewhat undermine some of the, you know, the, the second amendment is just for state militias and the national guard argument. If mm-hmm. in, if in the state constitutions, they were talking about individual rights to. Yeah. 45 of the 50 states have an individual right to bear arms in their constitution. Right. So, so the idea that Justice Scalia invented this in 2008 is preposterous. I mean, you know, also the first thing that both Hawaii and Alaska do in 1959 when they become states is copy the Second Amendment into their constitution. Well, why would they do right. that if if it w- was a, some collective right at the federal level to do the militia clause? It just doesn't make any sense. Right. Or to protect slavery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. um, they're just getting on that bandwagon a little late. Yeah. <laughs> Noted slave states. Like getting into leeches yeah. in 1950. Right? <laughs> All right, Charlie Cook, thank you so much for being on. It's always a pleasure. Uh, apologies to listeners who weren't as edified or engaged in our uh roundabout on the perverse incentives of american politics um but that's why it's my podcast and not yours um and hope to have you back soon i'd love to come back okay so uh uh charlie has left the building or the studio or the conversation or this part of the space-time continuum um always love talking to charlie uh didn't intend for us to meander so long on on these questions and i think um, part of the problem with arguing with Charlie is that we both can anticipate each other's objections. So we try to like move the chess piece, two pieces ahead and it can make it, maybe it makes it a little hard to follow. I don't know, but given how euphonious and melodious, uh, Charlie's accent is people never seem to mind. And, uh, alas, I didn't get to say aluminum, um, or any of that kind of stuff. Um, and of course, since he's a regular and a friend, he'll be back again. Um, so uh, thanks for listening. And um, I should also let you know that we recorded this on Tuesday, but we wanted to run with the Leon Aaron thing first because um, uh, just, it just seemed more timely. And um, anyway, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.